Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is the Slow Poisoner. I come to you from the future with these words of warning. It's a hot horror planet. It's a hot horror planet. It's a hot. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 86. This episode is sponsored by the fine folks at Lee's Comics. Attention comic book fans, Lee's Comics of Mountain View, California has closed. But here's the good news. Lee's Comics eBay store is still going strong with over 10,000 vintage comics, the majority of which are now on sale for half off. Choose from Lee's huge stock of golden, silver, bronze, and modern age comics, and specializing in Silver Age Marvel titles. You can count on friendly service, accurate grading, and quick, secure shipping backed by a money-back guarantee. To check out Lee's eBay store, go to eBay. Click Advanced Search to the left of the search bar, scroll down to Sellers, and enter Lee's Comics, Inc., period. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S. INC period. Don't forget the period. Lee's Comics is shipping daily with no delays. New items daily. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast and get a free bonus gift. Long title, Looking for the Good Times, Examining the Monkey Song One by One by Michael Aventrella and Mark Arnold. A book that examines each song, gives lots of details about each song and our own personal opinions. You can find this book on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, and anywhere where good books are being sold. Our webpage is wordpress.monkeys.com, where you can see many of the songs and give your own opinions of them. And we will be discussing this more on Zilch. Hey, Michael, it says here we've written another book about the monkeys. Wasn't the first one enough? Not at all, Mark. Our original book, Looking for the Good Times, Examining the Monkey Songs One by One, was very successful, but only covered half the story. Which half? The group half. Our new book, Headquartered, A Timeline of the Monkey's Solo Years, covers the solo half. Who knew the monkeys record so many solo albums? Not only that, but this book covers all of their solo projects, including stage shows, horse racing, running record labels, directing and starring in TV shows and movies, voice acting, and jail. Jail? Did the monkeys go to jail? Ah, you have to read the book to find out. You sold me. Have you sold them? Who, who, who's them? Those people out there listening to this. Well, listen to this. This book has discographies, photos, and other information about the prefab for Mickey, Davy, Peter, and Mike, the solo monkeys, plus another nifty cover by Scott Shaw. Wow, he did our last cover, and this one's equally good. Where can you get this masterpiece? Announcer. Announcer? That's me. <clears throat> Get Headquartered, a timeline of the monkey solo years, written by Michael A. Ventrella and Mark Arnold. Those two guys. It's available in hardback, paperback, or ebook from BearManorMedia.com or from Amazon. Get your copies today.
cool. I'm going to get one today. Currently, I'm working on my Mad and Disney books, as well as articles on the Pink Panther and on Popeye for Back Issue magazine. Our guest today publishes books featuring comic strips that date back over 100 years. His company is called Sunday Press Books. Here he is, Peter Moreska. Okay, on the phone today I have Peter Moreska, and you are the publisher of a number of books uh, under the heading of Sunday Press Books. And I uh, just wanted to know how you... Just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into book publishing. Uh, well, I've always been a big collector and fan of um, comic strips. And I spent about uh, 40 years amassing this collection. And um, before, before this, I was working in, um, in the tech world, tech entertainment. I started out at uh, Apple Computer um, doing um, sort of edutainment and uh, R&D and uh, picked up a lot of computer skills and then went on and had my own uh, company with a friend and then we were absorbed by uh, um, Macromedia to do entertainment on their website. Mm. And all along, I still kept up my interest in comics and then it was 2005 that uh, I noticed the 100th anniversary of Little Nemo was coming up and looked at my collection and saw that uh, another 100, it was 100 years old, another 100 years, it was going to be gone. Hmm. Nobody would be able to look at these things. So I said, people really need to see this at the original size. So that's why I went around to publishers trying to get people to do it. And everybody said, that's very nice, but we can't sell it, so we can't do it. Hmm. <laughs> so I uh, had, spoke with friends I had both uh, in New York and in, uh, in Europe. And I say, well, you know, we'll help you do it. I had never, never done a book before. I had no other, no idea how to do it. But I knew this little Nemo had to be done. Mm-hmm. So um, I just, uh, uh, just pulled some money out of the bank and uh, got the first project completed. Hmm. And uh, was were all these strips in this or any collection you've done actually from your own personal collection, or have you had to do research? Um, yeah, and... most of them were. Um, oh, all, okay. all the Nemos were from my collection. Hmm. And then further books, uh, I sometimes had to supplement from other collectors and going to uh, archives and libraries and things mm-hmm. to find uh, missing pieces. Now, do you typically scan from, like, printed newspaper, or do you try to get, in any case, original art, if you can? Well, the whole process for me, it was part... Um, I guess part part nostalgia and part uh, our, our, an archival sense, mm-hmm. but really wanted to um, reproduce the feel of reading these things on newspapers. Mm-hmm. The experience I had as a kid where there wasn't a lot of Saturday morning TV or Sunday morning cartoons, we had to um, uh, get our entertainment from the Sunday newspaper. And at that time it was you know 20 or 30 pages in the comic section. And we put it out on the floor and spent uh, a half hour, an hour just reading all of these comic strips. And um, I wanted to reproduce not just the comic strips, but re- reproduce that experience. So for me, the thing to do was to scan from the newspaper strips and then try and um, reproduce that feel of newsprint. But, of course, on paper that's far sturdier and longer right. lasting. <laughs> and um, I guess what, what's the exact process you go through? Because I've seen some of your books. They're very handsome, but it looks like you have to do a lot of cleanup and things to make them look presentable and things like that. So what's the kind of basic process you do on making a, a page for your book? Yeah, um, what I like to do is I'll anything that's 
due to the damage due to the ravages of time, that I'll replace. So a lot of times there are holes and pieces where I'll have to, um, you know, cut and paste or borrow from other other parts of the strip or borrow some lettering to fix inside balloons and, um, and so forth. But a lot of times if uh, ink is a little bit smudged in the printing or there's a little bit of um, things here, things are out of register, then I'll tend to leave that in or just fix it minimally so that it doesn't really confuse what the art is trying to say. And um, uh, once that's done, I'll tweak the colors to the point where it's not really garish. I don't like personal taste, I don't like the reproductions where it's really sharp white backgrounds and, and bright colors. I like to get as much of the half tones and of the little um, you know patterns that get uh, printed into the into the papers, so that it does feel like you're reading an old newspaper. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll tweak tweak the colors to where it's it's brighter, but not so bright that it doesn't look like an old newspaper. Right. <laughs> Trying to imagine what an old paper old newspaper looked like when it was almost new. Mm-hmm. Now I know you're not a hundred years old, so how did you <laughs> develop? a taste for some of the, you know, you said Little Nemo and then some of the other ones I hadn't even heard of until I'd seen your books, like Little Sammy Sneeze and things like that. So how did you come across any of these when you were growing up or whatever? Um, well, when I was uh, in my teens and 20s, like everybody else, all, or all the other comic fans, it was, you know, Marvel and DC, mostly the Marvel Universe mm-hmm. that I was involved in collecting that stuff. And I was... Uh, working this was 1971 something something like that i was working as a civil engineer and somebody told me about this guy in an old farmhouse that had a bunch of comic strips or comic books or just comics he said so i, I assume they were comic books mm-hmm. so i said oh great maybe he's got some uh, old marvel marvel uh, stuff or some golden age so i went out to visit this guy and um he lived on this little, little farmhouse and the farmland around him had all been sold and uh, he was living on himself by himself and um he seemed to be uh, a little bit on the spectrum. That, uh, looking back now, that I understand uh, how that works. Um, I feel he was sort of on the spectrum, and he was a bit of a hoarder. Not mm. quite the Collier Brothers type, but he did have stuff piled up everywhere. Mm. And a very weird character. He would set his uh, he set his dinners in a week in advance. Mm. He set seven plates and seven forks and seven glasses. And then one day at a time, he'd eat and take the stuff out to the kitchen and wash it. So he was very proud. He explained to me how that he, how he did that. Only thing he would eat would be uh, um, white bread. Uh, and he had uh, industrial size uh, tubs of green relish mm. and gallons of milk. Wow, that, that, that's what he would eat every day. Wow, uh, <laughs> we're getting a little off topic. That's a little excessive. But, um, yeah, <laughs> but then we you know go through piles of things, uh, old uh, you know books and miscellaneous garbage that he had piled up, and through his living room where he had. A, one of those um, um, fiber aluminum lounge chairs in front of the TV, and that's where he slept and watched television. Mm-hmm. And then there was more stuff piled everywhere. And then he took me upstairs to these open, uh, these open wooden stairs that went up to an attic. And the attic was perfectly clean, blank floors, except for piles of newspaper comics. Mm. And this guy, since he was, at the time, let's see, in the 70s, he was probably about 60 years old, which to me seemed really ancient. <laughs> but he, since he was a kid, like about five years old, his dad had been bringing him all of the uh, Sunday newspapers from New York. So there were about five different newspapers at the time. And he would keep the Sunday comic sections and just put them in a pile. And he had done that up until the week before I saw him. And he just had piles of all these comics, not in any particular order, 
but he had read all of them, and uh, it's, it's, it's a really interesting, sort of unusual way his mind worked. He had all the stuff memorized, uh, so oh. he can pull off a, just something out of the middle, and it was a 1932 Tarzan, and he'd say, oh yeah, this was the point where Tarzan was doing this, and this happened, and he put something else back and say, oh yeah, Dick Tracy, this villain was happening, and this was the story, and, mm. and he has continued to read this stuff. And I probably spent two or three hours with the guy just in his attic, looking at all this stuff. And since I was a kid, uh, in the 50s, I had remembered reading Prince Valiant and a few others, but had, had no idea what all of these early strips was. I had never seen the, uh, the Kniff Carries. I had never seen Crazy Cat. Mm -hmm. Certainly never Little Nemo. All these other comic strips. And now here I'm seeing them in the original size, the way they were supposed to be seen. So that was my exposure to newspaper comics. And that's how I fell in love with them. Mm -hmm. And uh, since then, I had stopped trying to buy the old model comic strips and concentrated on filling in blanks uh, of these old newspaper comics. Hmm. A, lot of, a lot of comics were not appearing in the, um, in the New York City papers. Hmm. So I, uh, a lot of things I'd missed, like Buck Rogers and uh, a few other strips and Captain Easy, major strips that really weren't, the early versions weren't found in New York. Hmm. So I spent a lot of time trying to um, you know, complete collections and finding those. But yeah, it's, uh, and then it's, I just fell in love with them, seeing them the way they were supposed to be seen. Hmm. And um, I guess, you know, this is probably, you know, all the books that you've done are probably just like a small sampling of what you probably have in your collection, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I try and, and, and walk that line between you know, something that I really love and something that won't lose a lot of money once it's printed. Oh, okay. <laughs> Fortunately, Little Nemo did really well and Crazy Cat did well, so they were able to subsidize all of these other projects that maybe weren't quite as famous and couldn't break out of the comics collector ghetto. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what do you determine? I mean, is it just a personal love of the strip or... What, what's your determination of, oh, I'm going to do this as my next collection? Yeah, it, it's stuff that I've always loved, and I think people need to see that they haven't seen. Mm -hmm. And also a lot of it um, comes from requests that I'll get for people, mm. from people. And they'll send in stuff. They'll say, oh, could you do a complete run of Happy Hooligan? I say, well, uh, you know, that's, it's a great strip, but I just don't know if there's a market for a complete run of Happy Hooligan. <laughs> so, uh, you know, sometimes I'll work towards an anthology that will include some of these other stuff. Mm -hmm. And then someone, well, like uh, Sammy Harkham, a couple of years ago, came to me and said, you know, uh, Harold Gray did all of the uh, um, Little Joe strips after his cousin died and never took credit for it. And I hadn't realized that and went back to look at my, other, my little Joes and said, no wonder it looks so much like Little Orphan Annie. And it's Harold Gray. Yeah. So he said, you know, I'll, I'll help you with we'll a book of these. I said, great. This is something I think people ought to see and they ought to know about this work. And it's really beautiful, you know, dark adventure and humor and all the stuff that was, was, was in Annie in the 30s and 40s, only more so. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's how I decided to do The Little Joe, something I wouldn't have done if someone hadn't brought it to my attention. Mm-hmm. Now, when you when you choose a book, like uh, one of your books is a collection of Dick Tracy, and uh, I also know that IDW has been doing basically the complete Dick Tracy. Do you find any sort of friction or, you know, flack because of competition since you're kind of reprinting the same material, maybe in a different way? Well, not really. Dean and I work have worked closely together for years, and um, projects that he's been doing where he can't find strips, I'm happy to help him out. 
So I haven't really had much of a conflict. Sometimes, well, like with White Boy, Dean says, oh, I wanted to do White Boy and I want to do Little King. So I said, I'll tell you what, you, you, you do the Little King since you started on that. Let me do the White Boy since okay. I have all the pages. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, let's, let's work it that way. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, there's been, and, and with Fancy Graphics as well, they've, I've helped them out with a lot of strips. They helped me a lot with the, with the uh, Crazy Cat book, even though they had their own Crazy Cat series going. Yeah, and that was a question too. Yeah, Crazy Cat, like, uh, is your book kind of redundant if you already have a complete Crazy Cat by a different publisher? But uh... um, Yeah, there's a difference in a couple of ways. Like the Dick Tracy stuff, those Sundays weren't printed in color. True. So yeah. I said, well, I don't know that I can do a market of doing a complete run of the color strips, but let's just pick, go decade by decade and pick several great, uh, uh, great stories that run about 50 pages. Mm-hmm and uh, reproduce those stories in the original tabloid size and uh, base, basing them on the original colors. Mm-hmm. So it sort of augments the uh, collection that Dean had put together when someone wants to see, yeah, what are these stories? I have these stories, but let me take a look at them in color. Okay. Now, do you have a cutoff? I, I honestly haven't looked inside the Dick Tracy one. I didn't even know you did that particular one. Uh, but uh, do you go all the way up to the present day or do you just cut off when Chester Gould retired? Um, I would cut off it when Chester Gould retired, and what I've done was, I, because there's so much good stuff, I think there's more than one volume, even though I, I didn't want to do the complete Color Sundays. Yeah. So I just do it by decade. So I did one of all the best stories of the 30s, and then I'm working now to pull one together on all the best stories of the 40s and reproduce four or five of the good um, stories in, in full tabloid size and color. Okay, so you're not done with Dick Tracy. There's more coming, okay. okay. I hope so. <laughs> And um, let's see, uh, one of the ones that I personally love, and uh, I wish you'd do more, uh, is the Symbol Theater one, because it seems like uh, Fanographics only wanted to do the Popeye books, and I have all those complete Popeyes. Is there a market for things like that, to have like the complete Symbol Theater prior to Popeye, if it doesn't have Popeye in it? <laughs> well, I was a little... Uh, a little concerned about doing a complete run of these, um, just just for that reason. Like mm. um, uh, the Popeye book did so well because of the crossover, because everybody knows Popeye from animated films and comic books and TV shows and and uh, cans of spinach and, <laughs> and chicken and all sorts of other things. So you know, Popeye again takes it out of the comics collector's ghetto. Mm-hmm. Um, the Thimble Theater before Popeye was a little less known. Mm-hmm. And the market was a little smaller, so that's why I thought it would be best to not try and do the complete run, but um, just do a, a best of highlighting. What I did do is there was a um, a run that ran over two years. It was a continued story of uh, ham gravy and castor oil in the desert. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, let's do that complete run of a hundred something pages, yeah. and then fill the rest of the book with the best of the one shot humorous Sundays. Now, I'm not as familiar with... So I don't with... think there's another volume of, of Thimble Theater. Okay. <laughs> See, I'd like it, but I like his artwork, so, you know, but uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, the early Thimble Theaters were just like little spot gag type things. There weren't continuing adventure stories like the later ones came to be, is that correct? Right, yeah. In the okay. first couple of years, it was just uh, um, the, uh, the one-shot gags. The earliest days, it was actually, it was just a daily strip, mm-hmm. and it was actually a theater which mm. is why the uh, the name came about. There was a, a guy named Whalen did something called Minute Movies. And then um, when he left, 
the, the Hearst organization. They wanted to replace it with something. So they got uh, Sagar to do something. He called Thimble Theater, and it was like a little uh, vaudeville theater presentation, and he even had a cast. And the cast was, you know, Olive Oil starring as X, whatever the character is. <laughs> so he had Olive Oil as if she were a real person uh, in this little theatrical performance mm-hmm. uh, starring as someone else. So that's how the name Thimble Theater actually got started. Now, is there, uh, I guess you said you're not going to do another volume, but is there enough material to make another adventure story? Or uh, was the one you reprinted basically the, the beginning of that by Cigar? That Sagar wrote. The first adventure stories in the Sundays. Uh-huh. Now, I think there would be a market for a, because it's less expensive to produce, for a, a run of the daily strips, which mm-hmm. did have continued stories that were separate from the Sunday stories. Ah, okay. So I'm not, I'm not sure that that's something I would do, but it's, uh, I think it's a possibility and maybe, uh, maybe someone could talk Dean into doing that. Okay. Yeah. That's what I'm I may take it on later on. <laughs> that's what I was kind of driving at. Um, and uh let's see um so your latest book let me get the title up here or you could just say it uh, is gross exaggerations it's not out yet but uh it's gross exaggerations the meshuga comic strips of milt gross now um i was somebody that wasn't familiar with milt gross at all until craig yo did a milt gross book that reprinted a lot of his Mm -hmm. comic book work and i go Oh, this guy's kind of an interesting artist. <laughs> um, and then, of course, Paul Toomey did a great thing with uh, IDW and, and Dean's uh, Dean's collections. Right, right. Uh, screwball comics. Yes, yeah. And so now it's like now it's like somebody I was never even aware of. You know, suddenly I'm like, oh, that's a book, and I have a couple of Milton Gross books that I just happen to find in used bookstores because most people don't know who he is or care or whatever. And so, you know, I have a few collections. So. What is out there, and what's in this new book? Well, um, you mentioned the books. His books are really interesting, and his his books, a lot of them will concentrate on how he got started, which was using a lot of the uh, Yiddish-American humor and Yiddish-American dialect. Mm-hmm. And like a nice baby and Dundask and uh, the, uh, the, the night in front of Christmas and <laughs> those things. And um, it shows where his, his humor began, uh, it got a lot of the stuff out of um, uh, early 20th century vaudeville. Hmm. And a good percentage of that was in Yiddish humor, and which, of course, gave us uh, the Marx Brothers and uh, a lot of other stuff as well that came out of that period. So there was screwball stuff that was going on on stage, and, and people just loved it. And so that was the basis of his first actual comic strip, Nice Baby. Hmm. Is his first uh, Sunday comic strip of any of any uh, uh, any real success? He had a couple of others before that, but that was the big one, and that was a um, the story of a uh, of, um, uh, Yiddish family in New York and uh, their their misadventures, and it was sort of like a. Uh, a typical family strip that you would find of the day of, uh, you know, like bringing up father or Tutankasper Casper or some of those, but it was all done with this, uh, heavy, uh, Yiddish accent mm-hmm. and, uh, a lot of the, um, that, that Yiddish vaudeville humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was the first strip that he did. And the book, uh, contains, uh, the three major Sunday comics that he did, which were Nice Baby, Dave's Delicatessen, and Count Screwloose. 
Mm-hmm. And the and also a good collection of stuff from his books, his magazines. I had Paul Toomey in as an associate editor on this. So he was able to provide a lot of the historical information and uh, a lot of the stuff that he did for magazines and books beyond the comic strips. Mm-hmm. But in the three comic strips, the, the Nice Baby, which was the, uh, the Jewish-American family in New York, and then he did some, the, uh, moved on to something called Count Screws from Toulouse, <laughs> which was a, a little bit like uh, uh, Little Nemo in reverse, where Little Nemo would have it live in the normal world and then go out uh, into this uh, crazy fantasy world, come back to the normal world. In Count Screws, Count Screws was living in an asylum. Now, of course, this is not politically correct for these days, but <laughs> in those days, it was a lot of humor based on people who thought they were Napoleon Bonaparte and lived in an asylum with people just running around in crazy outfits doing crazy things. Mm-hmm. So Count Screwless begins in that world, goes out into uh, the what we call the normal world. He's the stranger in the strange land, and he realizes that the normal world so many ridiculously illogical nutty things are going on that he's better off back in the asylum so each each week an episode where he managed to escape from the asylum see something nutty in the real world and then comes back to the asylum which for him seems more rational the the, the thing about count Skrulos is he would always end up back at the asylum because the uh, the real world outside uh, just seemed too crazy and too illogical <laughs> now and, uh, the, go ahead the last big strip was Dave's Delicatessen, mm-hmm. which was a, a sort of a typical um, shop owner uh, who had his own little bit, de- little bit of deli, and he was sort of a straight man. And there was all these insane characters that, that came in and created nutty situations around mm-hmm. him. Uh, a funny thing is, though, some of the Midwest papers I found, they didn't call the strip Dave's Delicatessen. They called it Uncle Dave. Hmm. Because I think maybe somebody in in uh, Wisconsin didn't know what a delicatessen was. <laughs> now, I'm always curious about this because I don't follow comic strips as thoroughly as you do. <laughs> um, so a lot of these uh, different creators, be it uh, Milk Gross or Windsor McKay or even Elsie uh, Cigar, um, they had like multiple strips going. Now, were these going concurrently or? Uh, one after the other, or did things flop? Is that why they started a new one, or they just got a new idea? What was the story on these? I think it was a little bit of everything. Um, if you go back to the early days of uh, of Windsor McKay, well, even even before that, the um, when uh, Opera and Happy and, and um, uh, Opera and Outcult were doing their big strips, which were Buster Brown and um, and uh, Happy Hooligan, they also had. Uh, three or four other strips mm-hmm. and sometimes just one shots that were going on and I think that it was partly that they wanted to experiment with mm-hmm. new things and the other thing was they were basically getting a salary mm-hmm. um, even, even though some of them uh, would get bonuses or some of them care, care, like um, uh, Outcult would pull onto the rights to his own characters it made him very rich but they were there and they needed more strips to fill the paper uh-huh. so they used the artists that they had to come up with new strips uh, Windsor McKay at, at one point was doing uh, uh, both Little Nemo and Little Sammy Sneeze at the same time and a handful of daily strips that showed up and working on animated films oh. and then in later years doing a nightly vaudeville act on Broadway. So uh, these guys, when you think about what somebody, what artists today put into, uh, not, not to belittle their work at all, yeah. but, uh, what, they, what they put into a Sunday strip of two or three panels and look at what these guys were doing 
doing 100 years ago. Right. Week in and week out. Now, um, it seems commonplace today for, like, you know, you use Jim Davis for Garfield as an example. You know, he'll have a huge staff, and who knows if Jim Davis even draws Garfield anymore. Uh, did right. it, these people have huge staffs back then, or is it basically them by themselves, and they wrote it, drew it, inked it, penciled it, everything, all themselves? Yeah, the earliest days, they were pretty much doing it themselves. As you got into the teens and 20s, a lot of them had uh, assistants. Okay. I know that... Um, uh, certainly, uh, Bud Fisher had a lot of people working on him. There were rumors that uh, that, McK- that, um, that George that, that George Harriman was working on Mutt and Jeff at some time. At, at sometimes, so it's it's hard to, it's hard to say. But uh, as you got into the 30s and 40s, many of them had assistants mm-hmm. uh, helping out with lettering and uh, you know, filling in backgrounds and stuff. Uh, the only modern person I know, I, there's probably. Plenty of plenty of them. I know um, that um, Patrick McDonald does all his own work. Mm-hmm. Schultz always did all his own work. Right. Never had assistance. Right. Yeah. But, and uh, when you're when I was a kid, you know, it's like you think everybody just does the one thing, and then you find out later, oh, Al Cap didn't do all this himself. You know. Now sometimes there's a little flack about that because it's like in the comic book world, of course. You know, it's like Bob Kane acted like he was doing everything with Batman, and then it turns out he had Bill Finger and a, a bunch of other people. Uh, so, yeah, no, what, it's similar in the comic strips, particularly with uh, with Al Cap. Right. We had Frank Frazetta and probably three or four other people um, that were either doing pieces of the strip or. You know, just working off his layouts and doing the whole things. But was there any flack from the public or anything like that? Or you know, nowadays I don't think it seems... anybody knew the difference. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I don't think they paid that much attention to it. It was, um, you know, it, it, it was like you get a TV show that you like, and uh, you don't you don't really care if one person directed it one week and some somebody else directed it the other week. True. Okay. <laughs> I was just kind of curious because nowadays it seems like. Oh, so and so's not working on their strip anymore. Sacrilege or whatever, you know. Yeah. You know the, the way well, they... now people pay a lot more attention to it, and uh, uh, than than they did back in the fifties. Right. Okay. <laughs> and uh, let's see. And uh, so, I was going to ask you one more thing about the Milk Gross book. It, it, you said that uh, there's certain things that might be considered like politically incorrect in the book and things like that. With this or with any of your other books, have you ever received any sort of flack saying, why are you reprinting stuff like this? Um, I haven't really, although I've heard some stuff indirectly. I know the guys at the um, at the, the, the Berkeley comic shop, uh, They people complained because they had posters of Little Nemo up with the impy character, mm-hmm. which was probably the least offensive of a lot of the stuff that was going on in newspaper <laughs> comics. At that at that time, but uh, there are people who who are bothered by it, and um, what I do have is I'll, I'll have a disclaimer in the book that talks about uh, the importance of not throwing out the history because uh, uh, now it offends people, and so people have to be able to, to uh, take a look at it and understand where it fit in with the popular culture of the day. I think uh, Art Spiegelman said if we threw out all the offensive. Uh, material in comics, there'd be no comics history at all. <laughs> That's true. Um, uh, so, you know, when you're doing a reproduction of things, you, you, there's no censorship involved or anything like that, then? Well, there's a selection process, like when I was doing the, uh, the Society is Mixed, which covered all of the first 
20 years of comics. And that's when there's, the, the stuff is really the strongest and the, uh, you know, the, the most offensive racism. Mm-hmm. And uh, not not just blacks, but the, the, the blacks were the worst of it. But also Jews and uh, and Italians and even Swedes, uh, you know, any, any sort of immigrants were poked fun at around the, around the turn of the last century. Uh, so what I did was I would um, not uh, get rid of something only because it uh, it had offensive material in it. But if there was something that I found that had no real redeeming value to it was not particularly funny. Mm-hmm. The art was not particularly uh, classic or important, and it had really heavy, strong racial overtones, and that would enter into the mix And uh, when I was trying to make a decision as to whether to put something in or not. So the Society's Mix does have a lot of overtly racist material in it, but uh, there's a disclaimer that explains why, and also I felt that it was important enough mm-hmm. that it did have some redeeming qualities to the strip other than just racist images. Mm-hmm. So that, that got included. Got it, okay. And uh, it says the origins of Sunday comics is kind of a, a subtitle. Uh, so what is considered, the, is Yellow Kid or Cats and Jammer Kids or Hans and Fritz or whatever you want to call it, are they considered the first strips or were they strips longer ago? Because in the comic book world it seems like well, comic books debuted in the 30s, but then you could find examples of comic books in the 18th century or something. So, right, right. When, when, yeah, um, what do you think the earliest comic to, strips are? People point to Yellow Kid. And, you know, it was, uh, used to be considered the first comic strip, but it was the first wildly popular comic strip mm. that uh, featured a, um, uh, a, a continuing character. And it, and also at the same time, it was the first comic strip that had been uh, where people would tune in every week to see that same character, and people would be reading about the same character every week. And um, so that was sort of important and milestone. But certainly before that, even in the newspapers, mm-hmm. for two two years before the Yellow Kid appeared, there were color comic strips, mm-hmm. but uh, they were only like one shot deals, and they came mostly out of the. Um, editorial cartoon comics and one-panel comics in various magazines that had appeared in the, the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. And, uh, this the first time they were appearing in color, and they were getting to a wider audience. So the question I had, um, also based on the origins of Sunday comics, uh, you said you know it kind of came out of editorial cartoons. Now, did any editorial cartoons... Way back when, did any of them ever have any kind of recurring characters, or was Yellow Kid, yeah, the first one, that, to your knowledge? Um, you'd have to check with Rick Marshall for sure, because he's okay. an expert on this. But to my knowledge, the only recurring characters that would appear would be the, uh, the, the politicians or businessmen that they were poking fun of uh, uh, on a regular basis. Got it, okay. But there weren't, and even in some of the editorial cartoons now, they'll have these little side characters that appear and make comments. Right, uh, right. From what I can remember, uh, that's a relatively modern invention. Actually, it, it, it would be, it's not that modern because the yellow kid uh, actually did that. Yes. He would be the character who would be commenting right. on all the insane things that were going on in the world around him. Right. Now, um, conversely, uh, I know yellow kid, but uh, another, were, were uh, other Sunday strips early on ostensibly political or what was the first kind of just straight entertainment strip would that be like the cats and jammer kids or something else 
Um, that's the first one that really caught on. There were a okay. lot of one-shots before that. But yeah, you're right. In the, the first couple of years of comics, um, of, of the particularly the, the Sunday comics, mm-hmm. it was a lot of social commentary. And it wasn't always political, but it was make, making fun of the social mores, the social activities of the time. Okay. And most of it centered around New York. Mm-hmm. So there were... They were poking fun at things like building of the New York subways and building of New York skyscrapers and all of these and, and um, uh, powered air flight, all of these things that were really uh, uh, sort of sea changes going on in the society that in maybe in some ways poking fun of them would help people uh, get uh, help people to, uh, face these changes and be able to understand what's going on and sort of make fun of it while all these things were happening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm just asking you basic history because, you know, I kind of know this, but, you know, I, I have some curious. Um, roughly what year was, like, the first, like, color Sunday comic section then? Um, you know, I'd have to get the, the, the exact years. I might be off a year or two. Okay. But it was, uh, I think, about 1893 mm-hmm. um, where uh, the... Uh, um, 1892 or 93, uh, there was a, a magazine called the, um, in, in France, uh, called, uh, was it uh, Paris Journal, Petit Journal? Um, anyway, that, um, they had come up with a way of uh, doing four-color printing, mm. which was actually uh, much cheaper than the things that were going on before that. So that's, um, that's that was sort of the, the, the origins of the the comic supplement, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of people think that uh, you know it started with Joseph Pulitzer in the world, but actually it was the Chicago Inter Inter Ocean, mm. and uh, there was an editor there at H uh, H Colsat, and what he did was he had been to Paris and saw this magazine, and he decided he needed to take it back and use it in his um, Chicago newspaper, and he created the first color Sunday supplements. Mm. And there were a little, uh, there was a, a, a little bit of comics uh, that went on there and, and humorous illustration, but a lot of it was to promote his political ideas. Oh. <laughs> so he would have um, uh, polit- local politicians with nice you know, color illustrations of these people. And then it was uh, Pulitzer who had seen the interruption and said, you know, I could use this to really bring some excitement to the comic strips that I have. And so he then created... Uh, the uh, the world color section mm-hmm. and uh, the the funny side and that's where the yellow kid first appeared and right how it uh, really and a lot of the other early comics by Outcope and other people mm-hmm. and that expanded from there and then it was of course Hearst came in and saw what uh, the world was doing <laughs> right so I can do that a lot better yeah and so he went ahead and uh, stole all of the artists <laughs> uh, the great artists away from uh, Pulitzer. Right. Just like that scene in Citizen Kane, which was the, the life of Hearst. Right. <laughs> he uh, you know, was looking at the, uh, the the Hearst masthead and the little photo of all of the people. I mean, the uh, uh, the, the other newspaper, the rival newspaper, and mm-hmm. all the people they worked for. And he said, that's why the paper's good. So he just went ahead and hired away all of those people. And that's <laughs> essentially what Hearst did, with Citizen, what you saw in Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. Was he hired a lot of the great uh, writers, and along with that, the great cartoonists that were working for uh, Pulitzer and uh, had them work for his own newspaper in New York. Now, a lot of these cartoonists, um, you said earlier that uh, 
a lot of them were on salaries. So did they do other things like spot illustration and other stuff that had nothing to do with comic strips? Um, they did a little bit. Uh, I've seen a little bit of it. I don't know to what extent. Um, the, the thing that was related to the comic strips that was interesting is they would, a lot of these strips would have uh, unique logos each time. And so the logo would be a, like a one-panel comic strip on its own. And sometimes that logo would be done, like in the case of the Cats and Jammer Kids, uh, would be done by the artists themselves. But other times they'd have uh, staff artists that were, that were working for the paper, like particularly for the Hearst papers, to do those top logos. So you'd see a Cats and Jammer Kids page, for example, that would have the big Cats and Jammer Kids uh, for the bulk of the page, but the very top logo would have a one-paddle gag in it. And maybe that was T.S. Sullivan or maybe it was uh, uh, T.E. Powers or someone else that had done a cartoon that would act as the, uh, the top panel for that. So very often the top panel had a different comic artist. Hmm. Okay. And that was someone who had been working on staff in the paper. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, to your knowledge, is any of these uh, people doing double duty as writers for the paper, they typically were they just artists? Yeah, not to my knowledge. Certainly in the early days, um, the, uh, the creator was doing the writing and the drawing. Now, um, I don't know to what extent he would borrow his gags from other people or right. write everything on his own. Certainly McKay did everything on his own. Right. But I think most of them were uh, either coming up with their own gags or they were, uh, you know, they would have friends or associates that would suggest gags for them. Right. Uh, but I'm also meaning, you know, did they do double duty as writers for the newspaper, oh, like actually writing text yeah. as well? Right. Um, yeah. I don't know how many of them act would actually do... Um, uh, like text features yeah. for the paper, aside from the comic strips, it was probably done. Again, uh, uh, our friend Rick Marshall knows a lot more about uh, about those uh, sort of cross pollination than I do. Okay, I'll have to get a podcast interview with him. <laughs> oh, yeah, if you want, if you want the uh, the earliest uh, comics and illustrators, yeah, Rick's a great guy to talk to. Okay, I, I know I'm a Facebook friend, but I, I'm not sure if I really um, uh, had any conversations with him. So, it's, um. Let's see, uh, what else can I ask you? Um, well, all of these books that you did, um, or most of them, I mean, they get nominated or sometimes even win Eisner Awards. I mean, it's like, is that, was that always a, a, like a goal in mind to, to do smart collection, smart looking collections, or it just happened to be the luck of the draw? <laughs> Um, well, it, it wasn't a goal to try and put it together so you'd win an award. <laughs> I didn't even know about the awards when I first started. Mm -hmm. I just got, you know, an, an, an email from someone, and uh, I said it had an award, and then I got an email from someone for the uh, um, for the Harvey Kurtzman Awards saying that uh, they had put the little email book in, and then somebody else said that I had won, and my uh, old friend Robert Bierbaum was there and accepted the awards for me. So, um, you know, initially it was just, Let's make some nice books that I think people need to see. And uh, fortunately, uh, um, people who uh, really appreciated this stuff and wanted to see that this stuff got some recognition, um, the things got nominated for awards, so that was nice. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as the, uh, the, the Eisner Awards every year, there's, there, I think there's two reasons for that. The first is that um, they are really fine-looking books, mm -hmm. and that's not just 
because I do a good job scanning, and, <laughs> but it's also because of Philippe Giometti, who's my designer in, in France. Oh. And he was there right from the beginning. He was the guy who said, uh, yeah, bring your pages over, and uh, we'll get together for a couple of bottles of wine in a long weekend, and we'll make the Little Nemo book. <laughs> and it turned out to be a couple of cases of wine in 10 days or, <laughs> or two weeks or something, but <laughs> we, got it, we got it all done. So. Right. There, was, there was a technical challenge at the beginning because these files were so huge, no one had tried to do full-color images at this size at the 300 DPI that was needed to reproduce them. Mm. Um, so the, the software wasn't up to it. It was continually crashing. So it mm. took us forever to put the stuff together, but we, we didn't want to compromise. We knew it had to be uh, what it had to be. Yeah, and that was basically what I was trying to drive at on my first question, or one of my early questions, is like the process, because, I mean, yeah, now in 2020, it's, you know, you can do larger scans or higher DPI, but, I mean, you just kind of explained it, that things would crash and things like that. Yeah, so I mean, know, the software just wasn't up to it, because there was never a need before that. Mm -hmm. But that was um, another thing about... The, uh, the, the, uh, the, doing that first uh, Little Nemo book, and this is something that Art Spiegelman has brought up a couple of times um, when he talks about uh, you know, the technology destroying books. Mm -hmm. And it does in some way, but in another way, the technology made it possible for books like this and other reprint books to exist, because right around that same time, printers were shifting over from four-color separation to doing directly from a PDF to a printing plate. Right, And that made it possible for someone like me, who knew nothing about color separation and wasn't about to learn, to just come up with a really nice-looking image in Photoshop, make it a PDF, and you can print it. Right. So because of, because of the technology, I was able to uh, save all of this material that was going to just disappear. Hmm. Now, um, looking down your list, one of the books uh, is the Crazy Cat book. It says that uh, you may do a second printing. I mean, are all these books, like, limited editions, basically, then? Uh, that once they're gone, they're uh, gone? Yeah, they're all limited to what I think I might be able to sell so that I don't lose too much money. Okay. The, the Little Nemo actually went through four printings. Oh, okay. So they do come back. It's just that... Yeah. yeah. Okay, because and, I'm just reading on the website, had, and it says, you know, well, we might do a second printing, you know, second printing <laughs> under consideration. That's what it says. So. Yeah, yeah. And some of that involves now because I have a new distribution deal with uh, IDW. Ah. I decided I was getting too, too old to carry 40-pound boxes of books to the post office. <laughs> so... They're handling all of the marketing and distribution for all my books. Yeah. Say when I come up with a number of books that I'd like to see happening, mm -hmm. that they have some input as to what gets done next. Mm -hmm. So they knew they know all of the business and marketing angles as far as whether another Crazy Cat book or another Dick Tracy book is something that's uh, going to be viable, at least not lose too much money. I see. And, you know, all your books seem to have a totally different dimension, like one's 16 by 21, one's 14 by 17. I know you said you, it's dictated by what the original art size is, but, I mean, uh, when you're working with a printer, <laughs> do they have any difficulties in accommodating your sizes, saying, we can't yeah, do that? It, uh, <laughs> it may have changed since then, and I'm sure it has, but... Um, when I was first uh, first doing the books, there were really only two printers, maybe three, who could handle books this size. Yeah. Uh, two were in China, and one was in um, Singapore. Wow! And uh, I decided to go with the, the one in Singapore because I was able to develop a relationship with them through um, uh, Art's wife, uh, Francoise Mouly, who was able to set up a, 
you know, vouch for me and set up a, an account to get printed with them. Plus, it was a lot easier to get there and because uh, I needed to go to the press checks. It's a lot easier to get there and deal with the people than it, than it would have been in a Chinese, uh, Chinese printer. Mm-hmm. Now I think books this size can also be done in, in South Korea and maybe some other places. Yeah. So have you actually flown out to these to Singapore and uh, discussed with them in person about your books and things like that? Or um, yeah, well, I, I uh, usually go. This last one I couldn't because of the uh, uh, uh. Singapore doesn't want the uh, Americans in there. Right. right <laughs> but um, but yeah, I'll go to the press checks mostly for my own um, insane perfection because I want the colors to look as close to uh, what I think they should be as possible. Mm-hmm. So the printing is actually done in Malaysia, right across the causeway from from Singapore. Hmm. So I'll go there and, and do the press checks. So what does a press check involve? Is, do they actually print up a full copy of the book? or what, what do they Yeah, do? well, they'll do uh, anywhere from uh, four to 12, page, 12 uh, pages at a time. Mm-hmm. And it'll come out of the printer, and then you can look at that entire form of uh, multiple pages and then say, you know, in this area there needs to be a little more black and this, this got too much blue and I need some yellow brought up here. And uh, so then they can make those last-minute adjustments mm-hmm. right before the final page gets printed. Mm-hmm. This is something that they do on their own when they print. You know, they'll, they'll print it out and they'll take a look at it. And uh, based on what they think the color should be, mm-hmm. um, they'll go ahead and make those uh, adjustments. But uh, I like to be there to make the final adjustments, particularly right. in the earlier days because they had been used to doing comic books that had uh, much... and. and kids books they put them all together so they had much brighter colors mm. and so i wanted to make sure the stuff got toned down a little bit right more like newsprint it's not as important now to be there as it was for the first couple of books right now they pretty much got the got the system down right because yeah your books generally have a overall uniform look so you know even if they're oddball sizes from each other <laughs> yeah and like and, and like you said the size is dictated by the strips themselves, so that the um, the Wizard of Oz strips tended to be much wider, mm-hmm. and they had really large logos that were the same every week. So I decided to do the book without the logos and just concentrate on the strips themselves. And so that became a little shorter but wider. The Dick Tracy book, I wanted to do an actual tabloid like the New York News. And then for um, Thimble Theater and a few others, I've settled in on a size that's in between the full broadsheet and the tabloids, because um, some of the strips, like Thimble Theater, don't really need the full broadsheet size, and they were printed both in uh, the full size and the and the smaller sizes. Right. Um, but the uh, the earlier books, you really have to have the full broadsheet size because the art is so detailed and the text is so small that, like the um, Lionel Feininger stuff. The, the, the other reprints, you need a magnifying glass to read the text. Hmm. So, well, so I, I felt that, that that book, particularly with the um, uh, the Lionel Feininger stuff, really needed to be printed in the full broadsheet size. Right. It looks like 16 by 21 inches is the largest size you do. So. Right. Yeah. Is there a maximum? Since then, people have done larger stuff, like uh, Scott Dumbier's uh, artist editions. Oh, yeah, yeah. The original size, like the uh, oh, no, original size of Will Eisner's artwork. And mm-hmm. stuff, you know, it's probably 20% bigger than, uh, than my books. Mm-hmm. Now, do you have a maximum of pages? Like the Sundays with Walton Skizik, it says it's 96. I'm just looking at the Crazy Cat, is 160. So is there a problem with, pay, you know, too many signatures or anything like that if the book gets too thick? <laughs> no, I, I mean, there, there's probably a limit. When, 
when you've got a large book of about 200 pages before it starts okay. to, uh, you know, like twist weird on you with the binding. Especially since what I like to do with these books is have a, a binding that uh, opens flat so that you don't get that deep curve in between the, uh, the pages. And again, it's all to duplicate that experience of reading a large right. newspaper page flat on the floor or on a big table. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so that limits the, the sizes. And then, and then it's limited by the, um, uh, what, what, what's really called for, how many, how many pages you want to include, and, uh, and, then, and then to not make the book too horribly expensive. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I guess that's another thing. I mean, is it... Uh, how do you dictate the price? I mean, is it by how many pages? By how how big is it? Basically, or? Um, yeah, part of it is, uh, is 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 what it costs uh, to make, and the other part is what is the perceived value and how much can you charge? Right. Um, and uh, I don't know that uh, even though it would it would make more sense to something like the Thimble Theater to charge a hundred dollars on the book. Um, I'm not sure that uh, that I'd be able to sell enough copies at $100, so I'd like to keep the price lower. But then again, moving forward, that's going to be a decision for the professionals to make. Right. I really don't know anything about, uh, <laughs> or very little about, you know, the marketing and the distribution and the, what, what, the, what the price points are and so forth. Right. So it's all, you know, this, and my, coming out of my imagination. Uh, now, with, with the, uh, people at IDW who really know the business, I can look to them for some advice on uh, on price points and page size and things like that. Mm-hmm. And this is just a dumb question, and then I have a couple other questions. Uh, is there a reason why uh, Sundays with Walton Skizix had to be called that as opposed to Gasoline Alley? Is it because Gasoline Alley is still published? No, it's not a, not a dumb question at all. Um, at the time, I had contacted the um, Chicago Tribune people and uh, went back and forth with them on, on getting some rights to do the strips. And um, this is actually, I, I, after Little Nemo, I'd gotten a call from Chris Ware. So I was trying to decide what to do next. Right. And Chris said, could you please do um, a, a Walton Skizik's book? I'd love to see it full full size, and I'll design it for you. And I, well, you can't really turn a deal like that down. So, <laughs> I went ahead with him, and I, I wanted to use the the, uh, the Gasoline Alley title because it's a trademark that's owned by the, the Tribune Company. And so we were in, into negotiations, and finally it, it came to the point where they just stopped answering my emails, they would answer my phone calls, and because of the what they thought was such little money at the time, they were looking at uh, you know all the big movies that were going to be made out of all their titles and so forth. And uh, you know, for me, giving them something that was going to net for them a few thousand dollars was like I was a guy that wanted to squeegee their windshield, and they you know, weren't really interested. Hmm. So at, you know, at that point, I spoke with the folks who were doing uh, uh, the uh, the daily strips, the uh, folks at uh, uh, Drone Quarterly. And they had the series Walton Skizix, and that was what uh, um, Chris Ware was was working on with them. So we decided, well, if you're really coming up against a brick wall with these people, let's just um, not use the trademark name, hmm. and uh, we can make it have the look and feel of the uh, daily Walton Skizix books. And this would be the Sundays with Walton Skizix. Mm-hmm. And once again, there was a cooperation here. I went to them and said, listen, if you're going to do this, you should do it. But Chris and I both both think it ought to be done. They said, no, it's not in our, our plans. And so And we don't do the giant books, so why don't you go ahead and do that? Hmm. 
So it's, uh, again, not, not wanting to step on anybody's toes in this really small market of right. producing comic strips. Now, in some of the other books, I mean, Dick Tracy, of course, is still being published. And uh, did you have any issues with that, or you just get all the clearances that, like you need yeah, to? The Tribune people have done a real a big turnaround when they realized that it's to their best interest to um, not only keep the trademark names on these books, but also to keep the fans rolling, and it's, and it's good for their overall business. Right. So the folks at the Tribune have been really nice, particularly this and, uh, and, and other things. And what they decided was, you know, it's, uh, it's not enough money for us to worry so much about. And they were very happy with uh, you know, seeing the material out there and getting some, uh, some funds to help with their museum and with their uh, archival work. Hmm. on the uh, on the Dick Tracy stuff. Now, um, this will be kind of a two-part question <laughs> because it may not be the same answer. So, uh, what projects are you working on next after Milk Grows? And do you have any dream projects that you'd like to do, even if it didn't make money? It was just something like a personal thing that you'd like to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, I'm not sure there's anything left that's going to make money. Um, <laughs> Okay, fair enough. <laughs> there are a couple of things I'm working on now. I'm working on a, uh, a book that'll be an anthology of all of the great uh, female comic adventure strips from the 30s and 40s. So um, things like uh, um, Connie and Brenda Starr, something like Deathless Deer, Flying Jenny, Invisible Scarlet O'Neill, a lot of this stuff that <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of people haven't heard of. Mm -hmm. But I think it's good enough for me to see it. So that, that's in the works, as well as um, a collection of the uh, Gumps adventure strips. Oh, cool. now, the Gumps is something that uh, you know went on for 50 years, and I don't know that anybody's going to want a complete collection of Gumps. <laughs> However, um, when the uh, the creator was uh, was still uh, when Sidney Smith was doing uh, <clears throat> the first strips, there were some great entertaining family strips, but there are also some of the first really extended uh, and beautifully drawn adventure comics. So what I'd like to do is do an anthology of the Gumps and include all those great adventure stories. And for people who are familiar with uh, Bill Blackbeard's Smithsonian books, mm -hmm. um, that, uh, uh, that featured uh, a couple of images of the really great Gumps adventures. Very cool. Now, um, you tend to pick older strips, probably with good reason. You said that you like the, you know, preserves the oldest stuff because in 100 years it'll be gone. But uh, any ever any plans to ever do any more contemporary stuff, like, say, a collection of early Dennis the Menace Sunday strips, which isn't present, it isn't that current, but compared to other stuff that you're doing. Yeah, that, that stuff has been done. Like, uh, a lot of the, um, the Dennis the Menace strips have been reproduced. And I don't know how much color stuff has been done, if, if any. But, yeah, not much um, Sunday. That's the reason yeah, I'm asking. I actually did a book the, on uh, Dennis the Menace. So, yeah. yeah. The stuff from the you know, 50s and 60s. And, uh, you know, and, and Dean has done a few of those, and some of the later things like uh, Star Wars has been done, Star Trek has been done. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think the later things have um, pretty much been taken care of. Again, I'm really happy to fill in blanks stuff that hasn't been done that I think it's great, uh, regardless of what the time period is. Right. Okay. Well, fair enough. Yeah. So that that's a possibility. Yeah. <laughs> because, um, yeah, I did a book a few years ago where I interviewed the people who worked on Dennis the Menace. It's called Pocketful of Dennis. 
and uh, you know, I, we were chit-chatting back and forth about projects, and they said, well, there's never been a dentist in a Sunday book, and primarily because Ketchum didn't do most of the Sundays. He had assistants do all the Sundays, so... But, you know, there is kind of a little bit of a demand there, so that's why I said that one in particular, you know, and also just because it's more contemporary. Um, so, but, you know, I you know I understand, you know, what you're trying to put across, and, uh, you know, everything's a possibility. <laughs> to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there were some really beautiful uh, uh, Dennis Amenis strips done in the, in, the, in the early days. I don't mm -hmm. know how much Ketchum had to do with them. Certainly, by the time you got into the 60s, probably not much of him there at all but yeah um, well i mean a brief history on that for you is uh, yeah ketchum did him for like the first year he says i don't like doing the sundays so he got al weissman who did the comic books to do them and, uh, and then he got lee holly who then went on to do uh ponytail uh to do them for a while and then it was a number of similarity there yeah yeah and uh then the 60s and 70s is bob bug and uh, more recently, it's uh, been Ron Ferdinand since the 80s, so, you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's like, it's the earlier ones, because everybody in the comic book world likes the Weissman art, and he did a lot of those comics, and they're kind of just kind of MIA, missing in action. So I was just kind of curious about something like that. So Any other uh, final thoughts about upcoming projects or Milk Gross? And also, let us know how we can get a hold of you or your books. Okay, well, um, the best thing to do is uh, just go to sundaypressbooks.com and uh, you can see what we've done. And I, I'll, I try to keep it updated when, uh, when new things are coming out or uh, you know, when there's any kind of uh, special deals going on. So, and also the uh, Sunday Press Books uh, Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I'm not. I uh, can't. can't, can't uh, I'm, I'm not a really big uh, social media uh, contributor. But when announcements are to be made, when interesting things are going on, I'll put it on the Facebook page. And we have a, a pretty good number of followers there. So, okay. So I would encourage people who are interested to go there. And uh, the other thing to do is I have uh, three features on GoComics.com, and one is the Origins of Comics, which is an expanded expanded version of Society as Nick's which uh, probably has more than twice as many comic strips in society as Nick's that, that didn't fit in the book. And um, so that's something, if you're really interested in the early comics and getting a little more exposure on that, mm -hmm. uh, Go Comics is a good place to go. Very good. And um, when is the... And always interested in hearing from people on what, uh, what sort of the old stuff they'd like to see in, in uh, newer projects, and that always... Uh, helps to uh, you know, uh, guide my decision-making. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> and uh, when should we expect uh, gross exaggerations to come out? Um, let's see. It's on the boat right now, and I expect it to be uh, available in uh, your local comic book stores uh, sometime in the beginning of October. Okay. Sounds good. All right. I want to thank you very much for talking with me today. And okay. Uh, we'll talk thank soon. You. It's been great fun. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Peter Maresca, for being my special guest. Episode number 87 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions.
If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2020, Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night. doors at the price I'm paying be glad it isn't yours now get up Don't fall back Don't fall back